G'day, g'day. I'm Ravi Nair. Welcome to the first episode of a Techno Legal Update. Now, why does this show exist? Well, it exists because of my role as Special Interest Group Technology Officer of the Communications, Entertainment and Technology Law Committee of New South Wales Young Lawyers. I know quite a mouthful, so we will call that CET. CET is run by the wonderful Ashley Ferengbach, our chair, and our equally wonderful vice chair, Jamie Walbers. So my role involves me doing media monitoring reports at the committee's monthly meetings on all things tech and law with an Australian focus. And by tech, it obviously, you know, tends to vary with the news. We look at encryption, cybersecurity, uh, privacy, fintech, regtech, cryptocurrencies, a whole lot of things. Now, usually I do those reports in person because I'm a proud Sydney boy who has lived in Sydney his entire life. And I'm insanely lucky to have done that, by the way. But I have a slight problem. I'm in Frogtown, in Paris, on an internship with the Global Blockchain Policy Centre at the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development. So the committee's execs and I had an idea before I left. Let's do my updates as a podcast. So my CT peeps... This one's especially for you. And in the immortal words of Jeff Fennick, I love yous all. Oh, and uh, before I begin, standard disclaimer, what follows represents my views and my views alone, and not those of any organisation I am currently affiliated with or have been affiliated with in any capacity. Also, my commentary may include uh, a fair bit of references to Australian pop culture and sporting history, so if we are lucky enough to have international listeners... Please, folks, hit me up on the socials if you need me to clarify anything. Alrighty, so fair winds and following seas, folks, let's get going. So our first story is basically titled, Blockchain Roadmap Points the Way to Success. And this is a press release from the Office of the Minister for Industry, Science and Technology, Karen Andrews, MP from Australia. Um, Basically, that Australia has released its National Blockchain Roadmap, less than a year after Minister Andrews announced that it was being developed. So a bit of background on blockchain and distributed ledger technology. So DLT, or the acronym for distributed ledger technology, is an example of systems that consist of multiple independent components that communicate with each other. What distinguishes DLT, however, from merely distributed systems is that a DLT-based network lacks a central authority that coordinates how nodes that collectively store and process data reach agreement over the state of the system. The network is designed specifically to operate under adversarial conditions, that is, remain resilient at all costs. Blockchain technology is a type of DLT. A blockchain is a type of distributed ledger, that is, a ledger distributed across a network of parties, be they independent or organised as a consortium, for instance. Uh, My thanks to a report by the Cambridge Centre for Alternative Finance, from which I did some of the research for that paragraph. So, announced in March 2019 by the Minister, the National Blockchain Roadmap is the product of comprehensive government engagement with the blockchain sector and researchers. This corporation sought to highlight blockchain's potential and some of the opportunities that exist. Uh, That's language from the press release. The opportunities are arguably evident in Gartner's prediction that blockchain technology will generate an annual business value of over 175 billion US dollars 
by 2025 and in excess of 3 trillion, yes, with a T, US dollars by 2030. The launch of the roadmap is hot off the heels of the launch of the Australian AI roadmap and AI summit in Canberra. And note that Australia already is a leader in cross-border cooperation on several key projects to improve the technical and regulatory environment for blockchain, as I will detail shortly. So the roadmap document itself is divided into um, some uh, important sections, obviously. So here is how they go. First, we have the description of the context of the blockchain opportunity for Australia. We then move to the, um, how Australia's regulatory environment will be made more accommodative for blockchain technology and solutions that use blockchain, um, specifically looking at issues like identity, data privacy, and cybersecurity. We also look at how Australia will build and maintain the necessary skills base, uh, quote, that can translate into the capability that drives innovation and helps blockchain reach its potential, exploring things like blockchain literacy and R&D. We also look at what Australia's role should be in, in international uh, uh, investment and collaboration on blockchain, as well as closing it all out with sectoral case studies in agriculture, credentialing and know your customer, as well as universities and some stuff other than that. Now, the roadmap will be largely looked after by the National Blockchain Roadmap Steering Committee. I love the creativity with the name. The committee will oversee next steps following on from the roadmap and its membership could be drawn from regulators, which makes sense. It will advise on incumbent Australian government blockchain initiatives and projects, as well as facilitate engagement with the blockchain sector. The committee will also closely work with relevant bodies like the Commonwealth Treasury FinTech Advisory Committee. It is great to see, uh, in my opinion, Australia stepping up its game in the blockchain space with this roadmap. And um, I mentioned earlier Australia's leadership in cross-border cooperation on blockchain. Well, note that Australia already is home to some fantastic uh, academic and technical researchers in the blockchain space, such as, um, well, you can't go past Dr. Mark Staples at Data61 and the CSIRO. Um, and note that I am not affiliated with Dr. Staples in any way. Um, I just think he's a great guy. Um, researchers like him are making an impact internationally in advancing the academic policy and technological conversation on blockchain technology. And Australia, through Standards Australia, has been selected in, 20, in September 2016 to manage the Secretariat of ISO TC307, which is the technical committee of the International Organization for Standardization, that covers blockchain and distributed ledger technologies. And of course, blockchain businesses formed in Australia, such as Everledger, Powerledger, and Civic Ledger, are known the world over for their um, innovation and the stuff they do. Now, since this is, of course, a roadmap, the document can be construed as a bit bare in relative terms to a, you know, a fully formed, say, bill that sets out a whole host of things. Um, the document merely sets out a series of issues in the blockchain space, good and bad, for Australia to exploit slash tackle, as well as detailing some measures, measures for Australia to tackle those issues with. It will be great to see how the roadmap is enacted and how the work of the steering committee plays out, as well as you know, how the government uh, deals with putting all of this into practice. So listeners, question from myself to you. 
What do you think about the roadmap? Does it hit the right notes? Is it missing something? Should it uh, outline a greater potential for engagement with the sector that it, than it already does? Uh, let me know. Okay, so our next story is from Clancy Yates in the Sydney Morning Herald, titled, Inquiry to Consider Calls for Screen Scraping Ban. So the Commonwealth Senate Select Committee on Financial Technology and Regulatory Technology will consider the issue of screen scraping by fintech businesses after debate among consumer rights groups and the incumbent financial services sector. So this Senate Select Committee was established on 11 September 2019 with a broad mandate to report on issues for Australians in the obviously fintech and regtech contexts. The mandate included, quote, the size and scope of the opportunity for Australian consumers and businesses arising from, uh, obviously, fintech, and that's from the committee homepage. It is reported that the committee will consider the practice of screen scraping by fintech businesses in its deliberations. This conduct involves collection and analysis of a consumer's financial information by a business once the consumer provides the business with their banking username and password, you know, for their net bank or whatever. Complicating matters further is the ACCC's delay of the rollout of the open banking regime in Australia as it continues to test that regime's cybersecurity controls. Folks, um, for those who don't know, the ACCC is the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission. So back to screen scraping. It is a divisive issue for the industry, of course. On one hand, critics point to its undermining consumers' privacy and cybersecurity. For instance, the Financial Rights Legal Centre and Consumer Action Law Centre stress this point in their joint submission to the Senate Committee. The entities point to the necessity of consumers having confidence that they are safely and securely interacting with fintech staff for the legitimacy of the fintech sector, which makes sense. Their submission also references a Consumer Policy Research Centre survey, which found that, among other things, 95% of respondents wanted companies to give options to opt out of certain types of information collected about them, how it can be used, and or what can be shared with others. That's from the joint submission. On the other hand, Screen Scraping's supporters point to the competitive benefits uh, for the financial services sector. Fintech Australia's submission explicitly states that successful implementation of the consumer data right enacted in law last year um, as a stepping stone for the open banking regime requires, for instance, quote, acknowledging benefits of screen scraping. Fintech Australia recommended against outlawing screen scraping until the CDR or the consumer data right is rolled out widely across the economy, pointing to how you know, such a measure would be contrary to the government's own open banking reviews recommendations. Committee Chair Senator Andrew Bragg would not be drawn on his position, but the Senator highlighted the role of the inquiry of this committee in seeking practical policies, quote, that would harness the economic benefits from technological change and counter the concerns and parts of the community that technology was job-destroying. He also stressed the need for technological neutrality. There are multiple folks, quite strident perspectives out there in relation to screen scraping, as at least as I can see them. 
fintech businesses on one hand rely on it for their business models. In the case of you know, a company like Raise uh, Invest to the detriment of their relationship with their own banks due to the banks claiming that you know, this is violation of the Australian e-payments code. But there are serious data privacy and consumer protection concerns that have been raised by the other side. And uh, just note that the US bank JP Morgan recently warned fintech entities that they need to sign data access agreements with said bank and support an anti-scraping plan should they want to access JP Morgan customers' data after July 30. It will be interesting uh, to see which side the Senate committee will take or perhaps whether the committee will follow, um, to preempt things, follow Fintech Australia's recommendation that screen scraping not be outlawed until the wider rollout of the consumer data right uh, so that there is no need for companies to use screen scraping, which is drawn from their submission to the committee. Uh, my question to you all is, where do you all fall on the screen scraping issue? And of course, can you say screen scraping very quickly 10 times? Our next story comes from Joseph Men at Reuters. It's titled, Exclusive, Apple Dropped Plan for Encrypting Backups After FBI Complained. Sources. So, according to current and former FBI officials and Apple employees, two years ago, Apple shelved its plans to enable fully encrypted iCloud backups of iPhones. This was following opposition from the FBI. The shelving was not previously reported on and suggests the degree of Apple's willingness to cooperate with the American law enforcement and intelligence communities. This is interesting in light of Apple's at least public-facing campaign that it champions users' privacy rights. Said championing has been plastered across its advertising in recent years since the Snowden disclosures. Its website has a dedicated section on privacy, detailing its products, uh, you know, various privacy-enhancing features like end-to-end -end encryption. It also discloses how it handles government requests for customer information and data around the world and publishes transparency reports every year. More famously, Apple challenged the FBI's request to help it access the locked iPhone of one of the terrorists behind the San Bernardino attacks in America in 2015. That litigation, ultimately dropped by the government, is considered quite significant in the context of the current encryption debate. Now, uh, more to this story. When Apple told the FBI about its plans, FBI representatives from the cybercrime and operational technology divisions, of course, expressed their objections on the grounds of losing, quote, the most effective means for gaining evidence against iPhone-using suspects. In response, Apple's legal arm caused the company to drop the plans, but Reuters was unable, note, to determine why Apple did so. So all we know is that there's like this temporal a thing that, you know, FBI goes to Apple, Apple drops the plans, but we can't pin down why exactly Apple did it. An Apple employee told Reuters that, quote, they weren't going to poke the bear anymore. Apple being concerned about the blowback from the public sector, also legal risk in being sued for making government agencies' job harder, and regulatory risk in potentially instigating the passage of quote, legislation against encryption. Note that a former Apple employee told Reuters, however, that 
Apple could have dropped the encrypted backups plan for reasons other than concerns of law enforcement agencies, including the issue, of course, with users who aren't, you know, as tech savvy, despite having an iPhone, potentially locking themselves out of their data more frequently. Apple has shifted its strategy, of course. It's now pressing on with ensuring the availability to itself and agencies armed with appropriate lawful process of users' contact information and messages from iMessage, WhatsApp, and other encrypted services, rather than, you know, going the full Monty with encrypting the entire contents of users' iCloud data. So this story highlights the need, in my opinion, to be more nuanced in one's understanding of the relationship between the private sector and government agencies in the context of the encryption debate. I think it's reasonable to assume that the larger tech companies like Apple uh, want to cooperate with government agencies serving lawful process on them, provided said companies don't think this cooperation is, in their view, eroding the protections of encryption. Those companies are, of course, alive to the clear risks of misuse of their devices for criminal and terrorist purposes. Both sides of the encryption debate uh, are watching, in my opinion, this Apple-US government relationship and any litigation therein quite closely. More recently, the debate was added to by Apple's continued refusal of the American government's request uh, last month, including a public statement by Attorney General Bill Barr himself to create a technological means of unlocking the iPhones of the alleged shooter in the attacks at the Penscola Naval Air Station in December 2019. In fact, this refusal can be considered to be the US government's forcing Apple's hand, you know, uh, by potentially leaving the government with no option other than testing its case in court. Which is interesting in light of, you know, under the Obama administration, the dropping of the San Bernardino litigation. Or will the federal American lawmakers actually do something and draft some actual legislation in the same vein, say, as Australia and the UK, for instance? Additionally, folks, where do we think this relationship between Apple and the FBI or, let's say, between the private sector and the public sector more broadly is headed in the context of the new crypto wars, as they're called? Also, to return to the earlier question, when do we think the, the uh, our Yankee cousins will pass some actual legislation to assist lawful access to encrypted data. Our final story to cover in this ep of The Pod, as the young people say, uh, comes from the gun Reuters cyber reporter Christopher Bing and his colleague Joel Schechtman. The headline is quite simple. U.S. legislation on spread of cyber tools passes after Reuters investigation. The Directorate of Defense Trade Control, or DDTC, of the U.S. Department of State is now legally required to report to the U.S. Congress on its licensing of the exports of cyber tools. Uh, just a bit of background, before this uh, legislation was passed, companies already had to procure a license from the State Department if they wanted to export such products to overseas governments. Now, this law came in the wake of a Reuters investigation into a program run by US defense contractors, who else, and involving ex-US signals intelligence professionals for the United Arab Emirates security services. This project was dubbed Project Raven. 
Project Raven was used by the Emiratis to crush internal protest and aid overseas espionage. As a result of this investigation, there was greater concern, rightly so, among American legislators about the transfer of such tools and capabilities overseas with little to no oversight, apart from, of course, that licensing regime. And also note the global and fairly large market for cyber capabilities and expertise of cyber professionals with vendors out there like NSO Group and uh, Gamma Group International who count governments as among their customers. So this legislation directs the DDTC of the State Department to report on its regulation of the licensing regime. The State Department note has previously explained that it carefully considered human rights issues before granting licenses, but it did not comment on the licenses that it granted to the US consulting firm Good Harbor, the firm CyberPoint International, and the defense contractor SRA International regarding the tools and services that they would offer to, uh, to form Project Raven. So in the end, one of the parliamentarians who drafted this law stated, just as we regulate the export of missiles and guns to foreign countries, we need to properly supervise the sale of cyber capabilities. I think it's good to see growing awareness among the corridors of government of the potential for harm caused by such technology transfers and how the exporting country, in this case the United States, may become indirectly complicit, shall we say, in the reprehensible conduct by customer governments of licensed US exporters. As the congressman implied, there is a clear analogy between physical weapons like firearms and cyber weapons. Both can be quite deadly in the wrong hands, either in the physical sense or in the sense of violating people's human rights of, say, speech and association through intrusive surveillance. So, export controls on cyber capabilities are nothing new. I mean, the US uh, imposed a licensing regime for companies seeking to export cryptography leveraging devices or software in the 1980s. Of course, the Clinton administration relaxed these controls in 2000. But my question to you, dear listeners, is where do you stand on the export of cyber capabilities and tools? So thank you all so much for listening to this first episode of A Techno Legal Update. Uh, I hope you found it informative, hope you found it interesting. In case you felt that there were some questions left unanswered by me, or if you have any other feedback, please don't hesitate to let me know. Uh, reach out to me on Twitter at Ravi Rocks, all lowercase, all one word, with two Ks. And if you're wondering why there are two Ks, well, 14-year-old me made a typo when he was setting up his Twitter account. Alrighty, I'll leave you to it, folks. Cheers. <laughs>